0: There is a hole in our heart, which is there so that love can flow through it, which gives our soul air to breathe. And that's cute, isn't it? Love makes our heart grow fonder. So positive. I feel pleasure. And like Dr. Chapman said from our last episode, where there is no love, there is no life. I'm going to embroider that with something cute yes, and hang it on the bathroom wall. And since the world will be a better place when we all love, then we are winning as a human race because everything we do is out of love. The three main factors that defines love is affection, devotion, and of course, desire. These are not separate factors, but intertwined into love. But let's just talk about love itself, without the additives additives, like uh, to redefine it with a suffix, such as how Paul's letter to the Corinthians, as it's written in the latter portion of the Bible, defines love as being kind, gentle, patient, without greed, without conditions, always trusting, hoping, protecting, never failing, except if God says so, or some knowledge comes into view, to the contrary, then Eh, This too shall pass. While I understand Paul's purpose for this letter, he's not redefining love, but refining it, eliminating the infant varieties of love for just the godly type of love, the type of love Dr. Chapman was addressing. But putting love back into its natural state, I'd argue that those abandoned babies that perished due to lack of love were really victims of misplaced love. Let me explain. The city Paul's letter was going to was Corinth, which was a major crossroads to the eastern trade route of the Roman Empire, the Greek-speaking side. And much like many of our large westernized cities, love is equated with pleasure, euphoria. This was because Hellenistic hedonism and ascensism were deeply rooted into Corinth culture. Today... Hedonists pursue a lifestyle of self-indulgence. But the term hedonism comes from the ancient Greek word pleasure. Our concept of, of the philosophy of hedonism largely stems from the ancient Greeks' claims that human behavior is determined by desires to increase pleasure and to decrease pain. Their conclusion was that, therefore, indulge the senses to depart from pain into a euphoric world of pleasures. So, pretty became right and ugly became wrong. We love pretty, we hate ugly. Pretty is smart, ugly is stupid. Pretty rules the heavens, ugly rules the underworld. The things that are pleasing to the senses became holy in our lives, such as music, art, food, positive emotions, which were induced to, like, theater, tragedies, comedies, romance, as well as the other activities, such as the cult of Dionysus or Bacchus, as it's called in Rome. In short, Dionysus, or Bacchus, is a Greco-Roman god of wine, freedom, intoxication, and ecstasy. It was religious. Our Western uh, equivalents to all this, on the one side of hedonism is Disneyland. Fun for the whole family. And on the other side of hedonism is Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. One for the modest-minded, and one for the inmodest-minded but both focusing on forgetting the pain and indulging in pleasure. So when Paul is speaking to members of the way in this city who rejected hedonism and its empty lifestyle, he needed to better define love, a godly version of love. And even hedonists, as well as all of us, desire to be on the receiving end of this kind of love. Who doesn't want kindness, gentleness, patience, selflessness? Even with those engrossed in the gross kind of love. But regardless, the gross kind of love is still love. Yeah, that good life. Candy Contrary to popular philosophy... Love is not a positive emotion, but a word to accentuate one's affection to something or someone. Now, I put this out as like a social experiment during a required annual brief we had to endure, I mean attend. The subject was positive emotions and how focusing on the positive emotions while pushing off negative emotions would improve our character. It was clearly classical Greek hedonist philosophy repackaged. So I questioned out loud, to my side of the room, that if I love to rape women, is that still considered a positive emotion? So if I have a positive, euphoric affection to killing people, will that improve my character? The instructor of this event wanted to slap me, but being that he was a good friend, he just politely let me derail the entire session, at least for my side of the classroom. Those who didn't hear my comment, they listed on their wall those, quote, positive emotions. On my side of the wall, my group had written nothing. They kept asking that same question. Well, if I feel this way towards obvious wrong, how could this be positive? So they concluded, with a little help, that without context, these are nothing but words. So it's not all about love. love. It's about context. All you need is context. It's a terrible song. But once our side of the room briefed the other side of the room about our new understanding about love, the other side requested to change their answers. Well, love is not some automatic positive emotion that is absurdly false and absurdly obvious positive emotions will not change the thing you can put lipstick on a pig but it's still a pity. Uh, and for those of you who are burning with disagreement with me, so let me remind you of another proverb that is very familiar that also uses love as a word, positive, negative. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That quote also comes from the same Paul in his first letter to Timothy, which is in the Bible. And really what he's pointing to is greed. Greed is a love of money, that affection, devotion, desire for it. And as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be awesome. Affection, devotion, desire. When do we fall in love? Hmm? When do we fall into affection of devotion to desire for, for better or for worse? Is that out of altruistic nobility of heart that leads us into love? Or is it just simply the means to an end? We love a... And since B gets us A, therefore I love B. But honestly, really love A. If A is ice cream and B is the ice cream man, therefore I love the ice cream man because he gets me ice cream. Now if the ice cream man changes into the hot pretzel man, then he's nothing to me, he's dead to me. Now that might sound cold, but ice cream is cold. Now, this idea that through euphoric ecstasy we can build it into affection and devotion is not that crazy of a theory. I didn't think so, and I must say I spent a long time studying, or better yet, wrestling with this idea, but I can't deny the proof. It's overwhelmingly yes. If I could get your dopamine receptors to fire off at just the sight of a carrot... You'll love carrots and you'll eat it and eat it often, probably so often, you explode your beta carotene levels in your blood and turn yourself orange. Ew. Unless we are trained in self discipline, we are impulsive. Advertisers understand this, TV evangelists understand this, politicians understand this, your wife understands this. Some flowers, a key, pointed words, and soft music, and your wife is still asking herself why she loves this pig. It should be obvious. Our emotions drives us faster than our reasoning. (laughs) Pulpit-pounding motivational personalities get a ton of followers, because people like how these individuals make them feel, regardless of the facts. I like the guy, he can't be wrong. Like the relationship between truth and lies, so is the relationship between emotions and the mind. One acts in hyper-rapid fire, while the other walks with one foot in front of the other. Or best understood by the adage, a lie will go round the world while truth is pulling its boots on. We biological humans are so moved by dopamine, Darwinians' perception of people as stupid cattle can be understood. While I disagree to their conclusion that humans are nothing more than animals, therefore we can eliminate the unfit and breed the fit for a better working class, this dopamine stampede that we see by the majority doesn't help my case. This emotional love fest for feelings over facts is even evident in that adage. A lie will go around the world while truth is pulling its boots on? Who said that, by the way? Or or who do you understand said that? I bet the majority of you have attributed this to Mark Twain. Mm. And you'll fight me on it, but from where? I've never read it, except on posters and memes. He did have some great things to say about truth and lying, you know. But he didn't say that. Nope, he did not say this. To show you how slow facts are, to overtake fiction, the quote comes from a sermon from a popular English Baptist preacher Charles H. Spurgeon in 1855, which may be why it's attributed to a deist than a theist. But if it makes you feel better, Spurgeon made up the adage by paraphrasing satirist Jonathan Swift's essay on the art of political lying from 1710. Jonathan Swift writes, They sighs as a vilest writer has his readers. So is the greatest liar has its believers. And it often happens that if a lie, he believeth only an hour. It has done its work, and there is no further occasion for it. Falsehood flies, and the truth comes limping after it. So that when men come to be undeceiveth, it is too late. The jest is over. And that tale has had its effect. What Charles H. Spurgeon said was, If I want truth to go round the world, you must hire an express train to pull it. But if you want a lie to go round the world, it will fly as it as light as a feather, and a breath will carry it. It is well said in the old proverb. A lie will go round the world while truth is pulling its boots off." That wasn't the deist Mark Twain. That was the English preacher. Now you know, but Twain, Swift, Spurgeon, and many others still teaching and preaching on that one relenting battle between lies and truth, fake news and reality. The problem isn't theist or deist. The problem is human nature. And this competition is not about what is right, but which feels better. Because right might be painful. It's about what you love, isn't it? Are you attracted devoted to what is right, regardless of its outcome to your personal well-being? Or are you attracted devoted to your well-being as defined by pleasure? It's no mystery that people are attracted to those things that make you feel good, which is why an emotional fantasy has so much power over our reality. This is the key factor in why more people will invest into gaining entertainment than invest in gaining education. More will go to Disney World, than they'll ever go to college, which is why public relations, aka advertising companies, make millions of dollars to make any product attractive. All they have to do is play on your feelings, those emotions, not on being rational or reasonable. This, in turn, has led our culture into this obsession on pleasure, yet in a more civilized hedonism. And when truth, the facts, threatens our good feelings, we kill the messenger before we will kill the buzz. And that is true to both the deist as well as a theist. Why? Because truth is often ugly. It's dirty, it's messy, it's chaotic. It's so unattractive. Reality is so complicated that there is no easy way. You can just grasp it all. And so therefore, hedonistically speaking, truth is best left covered. And this is true for Paul's followers, which is the purpose of his letters. Everyone hates the truth, so everyone blinds themselves to it. Yes, even those addicted to religion. So, ironically, as life seems to have it, that is exactly where truth will be, where it's most likely going to hide, buried in some shallow grave. So if you have the desire for truth, I mean really have desire for truth, and want to know what reality is all about, you are never going to hear it gossiped on the breeze. You're never going to be drawn to it like a naughty temptation. You will have to make some serious effort, like artisan, to find it and uncover it. Sir Arthur Conan Dole understood this and presented Sherlock Holmes as the example of a truth seeker. In many cases, it takes a Holmes to find out the truth. Once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Socrates, who lived in Athens uh, during the classic Greek period, 5th century, I believe, Basie, was ugly, according to himself. And this greatly upset him, because in this place... Where hedonism was social norm, his looks was used as proof against his words. (laughs) He can't be right. He's ugly. The quote I saw in his image of his bust said, Socrates was profoundly ugly, resembling a satire more than a man. He was a walking contradiction to hedonist philosophy, where pretty equaled good. Oftentimes, truth can be like that. The truth is profoundly ugly, resembling a satire more than a reality. Our vision is obscured by the foundation of our reasoning. But like truth, Socrates was good, not like an ice cream cone type of good, more like a turnip good, maybe not good tasting or good to look at, but good for you. And for Socrates. I feel his looks in this intensely prejudiced culture forced him to have to become intensely more powerful in his tactics than all others. While others let their good looks carry their message, Socrates had to encase his message in an undoubtable truth to reach deeper than his turnip looks. And because of his impairment, we have the Socratic method, the best thinking tool that I have in my toolbox and Socrates is still having his effect, even though he never wrote anything down. While I'm on the subject of Socrates, Socrates' position on love was that it was not a god, in contrast to Athenian common knowledge, and argued that Argathon attempted to make love appear as attractive and perfect as possible without regard for the truth. For Socrates, though, he didn't deny love's connection to beauty, But the beauty is the balance, the balance of soul, the balance of law, the balance of customs, ideas, theories, and especially the balance of wisdom is beautiful, which the love of wisdom in Greek is that familiar word, philosophia, philosophy. But as he pointed out, there is contradiction of love being beautiful, because if love desires good things, then love must be lacking in good things, and therefore cannot itself be good, but working to make something good. According to Diotomy, because, again, Socrates didn't write anything down, Socrates said that love, the supposed deity, is neither mortal nor immortal, neither beautiful nor ugly. Love is rugged and resourceful, but also is spendthrift. In his restless ambition to seeking quality, love has more in common with the unsatisfied lover than with the beautiful beloved. For him, love was not the one receiving pleasure. Love was the laborer. The artisan pouring over his piece to bring it into beauty. Beauty is a fruit that comes out of affection and devotion. Balance comes from skill, which comes out of labor. A beautiful relationship does not happen on the first attraction, but through years of trials and shared struggle. While love may be one path, there is always two directions of travel, right? Forward and backward. One direction moves us towards joy in the satisfaction of others. The other direction slides into pure pleasure in seeking satisfaction of self. The forward path of Paul's direction of love, there is always pleasure in joy. But going backwards, there's never joy in pure pleasure. A relationship that is solely based on pleasure never finds joy, but feels like they are being consumed like a piece of bread. Once you have quenched your thirst, the affection, devotion is gone until you're hungry again. Paul's direction of love, like Socrates, is to be fulfilling, never satisfied. That is what Socrates was saying love was not. Love was not satisfied. Love was not blissfully laying around in some euphoric days. Love is not controlled by his emotions, but by his ambition. More like an explorer wrestling with the elements than some dreamer on his couch. Regardless of your direction of travel, love still remains the same. Love never fails, love never quits, love never rests. Love is never satisfied and therefore, love never stops trying. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be awesome. And because love never quits, because love is never satisfied and it never rests, what we love may lead us into death, into our own destruction. If our love isn't pleasure, how far logically would one go to gain it? The answer has to be all the way. The two directions of travel for love is outside of ourself to inside of ourselves. Love others as we love ourselves or love ourselves only. One is balanced, therefore beautiful. The other is not. But before we found affection, before we... our hands into devotion, before we fell in love, there had to be attraction, that force that pulled us into their orbit. Attraction is not an end result of love, but only an initial draw towards a possible match of our desire. The foundation of what we love, therefore, is found in desire. That really is the heart of it. But what we love may not be clearly visible to others, and oftentimes, as noted in hedonistic philosophy, only feelings of pleasure is what we love. Activities one does may not be what they're really trying to to get out of it. Euphoric desire needs a vehicle to get there. If one loves a thrill, they're attracted towards those things that will satisfy that thrill desire. The thing itself will not receive our affection, our devotion, our desire, unless they provide the thrill we truly desire. And once it doesn't, it is he, she, thrown out like rubbish. That brings us back to mom. A mother's love for her child is clearly not rooted out of the euphoric bliss their poop-filled diapers provide her. She has an artisan affection for the child, devotion for the child, and a desire for what's good. If the mother doesn't have those things, she doesn't love her child, which is why abuse happens. Those abandoned infants Dr. Chapman worked to save were not the objects of their mother's love, maybe not directly hated by their mothers, but hated nonetheless. The mother likely had the child as a consequence of her desire for thrill, and this baby was now an obstacle to her desire and had to be cut off. Those infant babies these mothers did love, just not them. Like Socrates said, love is neither ugly nor beautiful. It's just the word to define one's affection, devotion, and desire of it. If it is evil, then they love evil. If it is good, then they love good. So if love is all you need, then we are winning as a human race. Everything we do is out of love, right? I'm James, and this is Noble Peasant, a podcast dedicated to drawing others to the joy of the balanced life. Visit us at peasantpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you.